Welcome to Don't Tell Me You Don't See Color, a special series in the Equity Clinic. This workshop is a sample from our three-semester unit course that's available to school systems through A.L. Berry Consulting in partnership with your local university. For more information, email toolkit at alberryinc.com. I'm Omitra Berry. How are the children? In our time today, I'd like to help move you along the path to cultural competency. Today, we'll focus on culture, race and racism, implicit and explicit bias, diversity, equity, and inclusion. These issues are concepts we must have comfort and competency in addressing to perform our roles in our school systems or to provide services to school systems. We'll focus on this question. How do these issues and understanding them influence teaching and learning in our schools? And if you're not familiar with my Equity Conversations Protocol, check out the workshop, The Equity Conversations Protocol, available on this same channel. And don't forget to like and subscribe to stay on top of any new content that we release on the topic of equity. Culture. What is it? Why is it important? What does it even have to do with teaching and learning? Well, everything. Here's why. Culture isn't a foreign concept. We are immersed in culture from the time we wake up until we are again asleep. There's a culture of every group you're a part of, your home, your workplace, your grade level or department or your team. There's a culture of sporting events that is distinctly dif different from one sport to another and from one team to another. And it is very different from the culture of a movie theater or a grocery store. The culture of your home with your nuclear family may be dramatically different from the culture of your extended family or your spouse or significant other's family. We behave differently in each of those places because of the information we have received over time about what is acceptable, the norms and values of those groups and those places. So take a moment and think about the culture of your home. Specifically, think about the norms, values, behaviors, and morals of the space and the people in it. I'll give you five seconds of think time. Now think about your workplace. It could be your school or district office if you're an administrator, your classroom if you're a teacher, or your team if you're a consultant or a sales professional who provides services to schools and districts. Think about the norms, values, behaviors, and morals of each of those spaces and the people in it. Again, five seconds of think time. Now, how alike are your work and your home? How are they different? And how did you learn what was acceptable in each of those places? Where did that information come from? Did someone hand you a book or give you a link to a YouTube video entitled The Culture of Utopia Public Schools? Not likely. You probably learned these things through social transmission, through watching and listening 
and your brain process this information without a guide or a worksheet. This is culture. Now think back to our focus question. I'll reframe it. How does culture and understanding the concept of culture influence teaching and learning in our schools? We begin to answer that question through understanding what cultural competency is. It's not just having the ability, knowledge, and skills to navigate within a variety of cultures that we are immersed in on a daily basis, like the culture of home, work, the grocery store, but the ability to do the same thing in cultures where we have no familiarity. That could be the home culture of a learner who has recently immigrated from a country whose culture shares little with your own and for which you have no frame of reference. It could also be the dominant culture of the majority of your learners where you have little or no familiarity and have not taken the time to immerse yourself in it to learn. To become culturally competent is to navigate those spaces with respect and comfort and without offending the people in them. Think about the norms, values, behaviors, and morals of your learners' home cultures and the people in them. Again, five seconds of think time. To become culturally competent requires we have some cognitive humility. And you're probably familiar with the concept of humility, right? Holding a modest view of our own importance. Think about holding a modest view of your thoughts. The cognitive humility is a little bit more complex, though. It's the idea that our brains can be challenged and, and developed indefinitely. The actual humility part comes in that we should be open to other constructs, theories, or ideas when we are exposed to new environments, places, and cultures. If you see your culture as the best or only acceptable culture, that, that your values are superior, then you're arrogant. You cannot have cognitive humility and you cannot become culturally competent. It is in that, that as educators or those who are selling content or providing services or content to K-12 schools, that we do damage to children. You see, some of you may have a charity mindset as opposed to an equity mindset. And I define educational equity as providing education without bias against or favoritism for any group of people. Bias against or favoritism for. Hold on to that. And let's take a peek at just one demographic against whom there is systematic bias, and that is children of low wealth. Now I'll preface this slide by saying that all the national report cards and data indicate consistently that in this country, in the United States of America, you are better off in our public schools, oops, excuse me, better off in our public schools if you are of low wealth or in special education than if you are black. And I very intentionally use the words low wealth as opposed to the word poverty because our children of low financial wealth have a tremendous wealth of knowledge about things most of us could never imagine having to deal with. But that's the subject of another workshop, another day. Here's what we know about children based on socioeconomic status. And before you question the age of the study, there have been follow-ups that confirm it. 
there has been no change. And I venture to hypothesize that COVID has only worsened the situation. Hart and Risley studied the language inputs of children from age 10 months to age four years. Over that time, the children in the study had heard 84 million words, but only 15% of those words were heard by children of low wealth. 15%. The researcher identified them by their status on government aid. At that time, it was acceptable to call them a welfare class. So the terminology on screen is that of the researchers. 54% of the words in their language universe went to children of a professional class. They had college-educated parents in professional roles. As Billie Holiday sang it, them that's got shall get, them that's not shall lose. So let's see what is got and what is lost. That oral language deficit was more than just words heard or receptive language. It was observed that children of the professional class got lots and lots of positive praise. 450,000 positive praises hurled at them during that study. Almost half a million times that they were verbally rewarded for something, even for times like I would tell my son, who's now 30, and long before I ever saw this study, what a wonderful picture you drew for mommy on your bedroom wall. Or what a beautiful sculpture you made for mommy out of my pots and pans and my fine china. I still can't figure out how he got all that stuff at age three. But my son at age 30 is now a graphic artist. But what of the children of the studies welfare class? They had received overwhelmingly negative feedback to the tune of 125,000 negative corrections or admonishments. I'll let you reframe the praise I gave my son for drawing on the wall or for sculpting with my dishes into an admonishment for that behavior. Use your imagination. The culture of these two groups of people based on education and income is as dramatic a difference as we can imagine. And so when we make decisions about instructional materials and methods, what we use to teach and how we teach it, we have to consider home culture. And for the vast majority of school systems and learners of cultural diversity, we have not done so. We have not engaged in educational equity. And because of that, we have created generations of curriculum casualties. Those low SES learners who came to our kindergarten classrooms with that 32 million word gap, that meager 15% of the universe of words in their heads and their lexicons, that life experience of admonishments over praise for behavior. That culture that was most likely dramatically different from the one in which we raised our own were not provided educational equity and education without bias against them or favoritism for them. They reached our sixth grade classrooms with an average 5.2 year gap in their reading ability below that of their higher oral language peers. Culture and the lack of cultural competency and a lack of cognitive humility. Those who hold the power in providing education, 
curriculum and staff development decided that their dominant culture was best and ignored the impact of home culture on their learners. I'm just naming the thing. In my book, Affecting Change for Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Learners, and you'll find a link in the comments below, I laid out a framework for a culturally appropriate response to instruction, or CARDI. You'll see the central focus of this framework is on the student and on academic achievement. The goal is creating systems where every curricular and instructional decision is based on improving life outcomes for children. Life outcomes. And the first step is to develop cultural awareness. There it is again, culture. Think back to our reframed focus question. How does culture and understanding the concept of culture influence teaching and learning in our schools? If we don't understand it, if we don't consider it, if we don't make decisions based on the culture and lived experiences of our learners, we do harm to children. Let's move on to race and racism. What is it? Why is it important? What does it have to do with teaching and learning? Much like culture, everything. But first let's level set here. When I talk about race, I'm talking about that social construct that references shared ancestry of a group of people. I'm not referring to ethnicity, which is in reference to a shared cultural background. And you now know what culture is, so that distinction should be clear. When I refer to racism, I'm talking about a mindset where people make broad judgments about groups of people, where they paint them with a broad brush of inferiority or superiority based on some characteristics, abilities, or qualities. These two young ladies you see on screen are sisters, biological sisters fraternal twins. Yet the social construct of race would likely have you see one as black and one as white. Does knowing they are twins give you a bit of cognitive dissonance? It should. Here is where you exercise some cognitive humility. Your brain can handle it. Race is a social construct. It was created by white Europeans to make sense of the way they wanted to see the world and hold power in it. This social construct and the racism that was then built upon it is what allowed the institution of slavery and subsequent torture of black people in this country for more than 400 years to remain acceptable, normal. They cooked the construct into the American culture. Hold on to that. Where race references shared ancestry, ethnicity is about cultural identity. Ethnicity is about our links to our nations of origin. Here in the US, we hyphenate ethnicities like nowhere else in the world. What you see on screen is my ethnicity uh, estimate. My cultural identity is Black. I personally prefer that over African-American. Not all my roots are in Africa, and I can tell you that I have really little interest in learning about my Scottish heritage. I know the uniquely American institution that that came from. 
As an adult, I requested a copy of my CUME file from the K-12 district I attended. And between kindergarten and high school, I was referred to as colored, Negro, Afro-American, African-American, and Black. Five different descriptions of my race or ethnicity over a 13-year period. Think about that and the many ways in which your children of color are referenced in our schools today. And I bet you hold in your mind's eye a visual to your children of color. Now, why is that? I'm gonna challenge you here. I want you to think about this quote. Racism is the fact that white means normal and that anything else is different. Now, that may be an uncomfortable place for some to sit. In my equity conversations protocol, protocol number seven is to experience discomfort and avoid moving to silence or violence because of that discomfort. So if you're uncomfortable, I'm gonna ask you to sit in it. It's okay. Exercise a little bit of cognitive humility. Now, I can't speak for all black people. But for myself and most of all that I know, we have had to sit in discomfort to hide our own cultures, to avoid making white people uncomfortable, just so that we might attain and remain in our roles as professionals in America. So you'll be all right. This is race and racism. Now think back to our focus question. I'll reframe it. How does race and racism and understanding the concepts of race and racism influence teaching and learning in our schools? Let's dig into one of the escapist paths in dealing with this, that statement of, I don't see color. And that is to profess colorblindness to avoid dealing with the construct of race and the concept of racism. The colorblind theory, as discussed by Bonilla Silva, argues that racial inequity is a thing of the past. We are a post-racial society. Race doesn't matter anymore. This works well for particularly white people who don't want to sit in that discomfort. Now, I said particularly white people, not all white people, and not only white people. We have a saying, not all skin folk are kin folk. There are some Black people who want to argue that, and there are some Latinx, Latino, Latina, Asians who want to argue that. But white people and all lump people of color who pass themselves off as white, particularly when it's beneficial for them to do so, can maintain their white privilege when they experience a racial threat. Color blindness is a deficiency. It's not normal, not in a medical sense, nor in a social sense and most certainly not when you look into your classrooms. You should see the richness and diversity of the children in your classrooms. The varying colors and hues of their skin is perhaps a hint to the richness of cultural diversity and heritage that they bring to the space, to teaching, to learning. How they make connections between their lived experiences and the content that is provided them. Because of a lack of cultural awareness, a lack of cognitive humility brings us this instead. 
And it may not rise to the level of protests in the street, but it does result in reading gaps, math gaps, achievement gaps, and disproportional referrals to special education or disciplinary actions. To profess colorblindness is to do harm to children. Our third concept is bias. Actually, it's a paired concept, implicit and explicit bias. What are they? Why are they important? What do they have to do with teaching and learning? Much like culture, race, and racism, you know it, everything. And I always use this iceberg as a metaphor for bias. Perhaps you've seen it in another session. Explicit bias is like the part of this iceberg that's above the water. You can see it. You can name it. Others can see it in you, and they can name it as well. Explicit bias refers to those attitudes and beliefs about which we are fully conscious. You know what you're biased against, even if you won't tell anybody else. Yet it is the smallest part, just the tip of the iceberg. Implicit bias is like the part of this iceberg that is below the surface. These are the fundamental beliefs and values that live deep within us. Implicit bias is what influences our thoughts, our behaviors, perhaps unconsciously. And that is why you'll also hear it referenced or referred to as unconscious bias. This is the bias or multiple biases that have been built since you were born. They have been crafted because of the language you've heard at home before you ever went to school. The things that people in your home community, family, your closest connections have said or intimated or modeled through their own behaviors that influence how you process the world. No one can blame you for your implicit bias. If you do the work with the equity conversations protocol, you'll accept that we all have bias. Understand that it is normal. You see the problem is not in the existence of bias, of implicit bias. It is in the exercise of bias against or showing favoritism for certain students as a matter of teaching and learning that does harm, allows harm, or denies resources to children. Concepts discussed in chapter two of Affecting Change. When researchers looked at which students, teachers were watching in preschools, they found that boys were watched more than girls, black boys more than white boys. And it didn't matter whether the teacher was black or white. And it didn't matter that none of the students ever engaged in any misbehavior. Implicit bias has teachers expecting Black boys to misbehave. Those same expectations, that implicit bias, are what drive the disproportionality of suspension rates by race, where 20% of Black students but only 5% of white students are suspended for the exact same infraction. It is better to be disabled than to be Black when it comes to discipline in our schools. This is bias. Whether we want to admit it or not, we all see color. And the data supports that premise. Think back to that focus question. I'm gonna reframe it for you again. How does bias and understanding the impact of implicit and explicit bias 
influence teaching and learning in our schools. And think also about how it does harm, allows harm, and denies resources. Our fourth concept is diversity. What is it? Why is it important? What does it have to do with teaching and learning? Like the other concepts examined so far, everything. We can define diversity in one of two ways for our purposes here. We can define it discreetly in terms of race and racial minorities or minority-centered. By this definition, diversity is simply about human variety. It's about the anthropological ancestries and ethnic origins. The first diversity by this definition is about genetics. But we can also define it in much broader, more inclusive terms. We can define it as other-centered or inclusive. By this definition, diversity is about languages, gender, socioeconomic status, abilities, and other demographics that we tag or we name as identifiers of the people within our school communities. But diversity also includes thoughts and belief systems. When we choose the more inclusive definition, it allows us to get out of our discomfort to some degree. Remember that discomfort may be felt when talking about race. And I asked you to sit in it in keeping with the protocols. When we define diversity as other-centered, we avoid the use of racial terms. There's no black, brown, white. No African-Americans, European-Americans, Indigenous Americans, or Asian Pacific Islander Americans. There are just people of color. And that expression allows us to ignore the atrocities committed to specific groups and the multi-generational trauma that follows and carries over, over and over the centuries. To use the term diversity can completely eliminate race from the conversations. And I'll simply ask you this, is that a good thing? If we eliminate race from the conversation, how does it impact teaching? Or importantly, how does it impact learning? I wanna take your thinking back to a piece of the colorblindness from earlier. The idea that the reason white people ignore race is that it supports maintaining white privilege when they experience a racial threat. Got it? The idea of race unconsciousness applies when race can be ignored because it is inconsequential for everyday life. There is no threat. As long as you maintain power, you can profess colorblindness or race unconsciousness. We have yet to, rem to remedy the gaps based on race. So to shift our terminology to diversity allows us to ignore race. And here's something to think on when we talk about diversity and let's focus on the other centered definition. Language. If I'm a language minority, I receive ELD. I can learn English. In time and with solid instruction, you may never know English is not my primary language. It's not something I have to disclose. That diversity, that marker, is not visible. Gender. If I'm unhappy with my gender, I can have it reassigned. You may never know what my gender assignment was at birth. 
it's not something I have to disclose outside of a medical record. That diversity is not visible. Socioeconomic status. Whatever SES I was born into is not permanently assigned. If I was born wealthy, I can squander my wealth. If I was born poor, I can work hard in school, get, get a good education, perhaps go to college or learn a trade that provides financial security. You may never know that I grew up in the projects or was homeless or housing insecure. It's not something I have to disclose. That diversity is not visible. Culture. I think we've covered that one in great detail. How my home culture is shaped is not something I have to disclose. That diversity is not necessarily visible. But when you look at a person or a group of people, when you look at the faces in your classroom, you cannot ignore the human variety, the genetics of the learners. It is critically important that you define diversity in the context of your school, your district, your LEA, your company, and that must include race. It is the one thing that your learners cannot change. It is the one thing that society will always see and which many are afforded or denied opportunity because of power held by others and their implicit or explicit bias. Diversity. Think back to our focus question. I'll reframe it once more. How does diversity and understanding minority versus other-centered diversity influence teaching and learning in our schools. And think about also doing harm, allowing harm, and denying resources. Now I've mentioned and even defined equity earlier in this workshop, but because spaced repetition is great for mastery learning, I'll define it again. Equity is freedom from bias against or favoritism for any group. As educators and education adjacent professionals, we must hold on to this concept and the understanding that it's about making sure that every child gets exactly what they need in order to experience academic success with instruction being free from bias against any group of learners or showing favoritism for any group of learners. Why is equity important? What does it have to do with teaching and learning? This includes honoring equity of thought, culture, and perception. Certainly, if we believe in equity and providing an equitable instruction for every child, then the central focus of the CARDI framework is non-controversial. Based on what we've learned about culture and cultural awareness, the first step on the CARDI framework is without question critical to successful teaching and learning. But equity is going to reach its tentacles deep into curriculum and instruction, steps two and three on the framework. Let me give you an example. You need a little background here, stay with me. In examining curriculum for bias and equity, our equity audit instructional materials review process uses eight standards with 57 indicators. 
one standard examines linguistic and cosmetic, cosmetic bias. The indicators address whether the content features actual first-person narratives of Black, Brown, Indigenous, Asian, and Pacific Islander people, not just pictures. On your screen, you see a failure of this indicator. In this fifth grade ELA book, excerpted from, or the excerpted text is on the Navajo Code Talkers, it comes from a book written by a white woman. From laws that forbid enslaved Africans in this country from learning to read to the linguistic sanitation and forced cultural assimilation of the indigenous First Nation people of what is now the United States, those who hold power have worked tirelessly to uphold a white Eurocentric culture as superior, even when professing to recognize cultural diversity. Dig into your content and you'll find the touted diversity of authorship teams comes from their diverse specialties or geographic regions from within this country. Much of the curated content touted as culturally responsive and telling the stories of people of color are written by white authors. Another standard in our IMR examines power, privilege, and whitewashing in instructional materials. The indicators address whether materials minimize unpleasant facts and events in history by ignoring prejudice, racism, discrimination, oppression, sexism, and intergroup conflict. On your screen, you see a failure of this indicator. In one most notable geography book from 2016, enslaved Africans captured and exported to this country as chattel are referred to as workers. When we look to see if our materials are equitable, to see that no favoritism is shown to any particular group, we find most commercial materials are far from the standard of equity. Shortcuts and hyperpolitical sensitivity have taken aim to assuage white guilt and white shame to the detriment of honoring the accurate and valid narratives of indigenous, black, brown, and AAPI people here in the US. Now, some of this lies at the feet of the publishers. Some lies at the feet of state textbook committees in California, Texas, and Florida that are the majority of the K-12 market. And some of this lies in the intolerance or comfort of educators who sit on committees to not call out bias and inequity when they see it, to force curriculum providers to do better. Back to the focus question, how does equity and understanding equity influence teaching and learning in our schools. Our last concept is inclusion. What is it? Why is it important? What does it have to do with teaching and learning? Inclusion is a practice that should be part of our policies and the culture of our schools. It's providing equitable access to opportunities and resources within our schools to people who might otherwise be segregated, excluded, marginalized based on who they are or based on their diversity. So inclusion refers to how diversity is leveraged to create a fair, equitable, healthy, and high-performing school where all individuals are respected, feel engaged and motivated, and their contributions are valued. 
So one last reframing of that focus question, how does inclusion influence teaching and learning in our schools? They say that fear is a prison of the mind. I'll say it is a lack of cognitive humility as well. It is one's personal trepidations that prevent them from moving forward. That reliance on professed colorblindness, invoking other-centered diversity rather than naming what actually is happening, calling out racism and ignoring implicit bias that does harm to children. I have forever been a huge fan of Jane Elliott. And if you don't know her work, do an internet research or internet search. She said, when you say to a person of color, when I see you, I don't see black. I just see everybody the same. Think about that. You don't have the right to say to a person, I don't see you who as you are. I don't see you as you are. I want to see you as I would be more comfortable seeing you. Further, as an educator or education adjacent professional, if you don't see color, you can't teach, train, or sell art or science. Even some components of mathematics might be a little troublesome. If you don't see color, you lack the ability to do justice to a wealth of literature. You cannot possibly teach, train, or sell history with any level of comprehension and not examine the role of race to give context to this, and this, or connect it to this. Even if you can't fully answer the focus question, I've given you some tools to begin to reckon with it. Grappling with it will challenge your cognitive humility. Feeling discomfort in the answers will help you to grow. But never again should you say, I don't see color. Thank you for joining me for this workshop. If your district provided you this link as part of the equity audit process with Aylberry Consulting, they have access to additional activities that are part of this session. If you joined on your own and have questions or would like information, please email toolkit at alberryinc.com. Again, there are links to my book, Affecting Change for Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Learners, as well as the Equity Conversations Protocol Workshop down below. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to us on social. Be well. <laughs>